Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, everybody at home, and welcome to House Lights, House of Coppola. I am your co-host, Tristan Riddell, and tonight we are talking about the first movie ever to win Best Picture Oscar that was a sequel, and that is The Godfather Part 2. Now, with me, as, as they always are, are some two fine gentlemen, and one of these guys has seen The Godfather Part 2 many times, and that his name is John Mills. John, how are you doing? This kid comes up to me. He's got a Ritz cracker and some liver, and he says, can of peas. I say, can of peas my ass. It's a Ritz cracker and some liver. <laughs> I'll make sure to give you um, a graham cracker then with some liver. That sounds absolutely terrible. <laughs> and then next up is a, uh, a fine sir who has never seen this movie before up until now for this podcast. And his name is Darren Moser, a.k.a. Dr. Sci-Fi. Darren, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You may notice in the camera, I look really, really young because this entire podcast, I'll be playing my younger self in flashback <laughs> form. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. You look 25, Darren. It's crazy. Oh man, that would be that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, Robert De Niro. I he doesn't look like Robert De Niro. He is so young in this movie. It it is almost hard to tell who he is. But yeah, first time watching Godfather Part Two. We'll see if it lives up to the hype uh, but i did set aside a good chunk of my weekend <laughs> to watch this film guys uh it has an intermission card i mean 2001 a space odyssey has an intermission card so uh geez it was it was long <laughs> now what we like to do with the show uh, when we first start is talk about how we first encountered the movie now darren uh this is your first time encountering it so i'll move to john first john can you tell us if you remember how did you first see Godfather Part Two? Uh, like I mentioned when we were talking about The Godfather, uh, I bought The Godfather Part Two for my brother. I knew he was a Godfather fan. I bought it for him for Christmas. And it was on the big clunky double VHS tape uh, there. I And I will always remember... Uh, you know, the, the intermission because that was the break point between the tapes and it was, it was good to have a bathroom break, but it was, um, I, I was absolutely gobsmacked. Uh, it, you know, there are so many movies that have, you know, they shape how you, you approach film and what you like or dislike and, uh, you know, Batman 89 star Wars, but the Godfather part two, I was, you could make the argument I was too young to watch it. Right. And, uh, I think I was around 13 or, or, or younger and, uh, I was completely floored. And just as a side note about that, you know, seeing it on a double VHS tape, this is a film that I use as an example for when you have format discussions, how truly great films don't care what format you watch it in it works it will work anyway and i didn't see the godfather part two and its proper aspect ratio for many years afterward and i can still remember what it looked like on the tv screen and and all of that and we didn't even have flat screens back then and it just worked and it stood as I, it still stands as such a huge cultural touchstone. It is mind boggling that Coppola released this the same year as the conversation and only two years after his first film, which was the Godfather. Like it's just, it's crazy when you look at the, just the pure technical achievement of this film. So I I'm sort of showing my hand there. I know, but 
Yeah, like that, that, that very much. I don't think it's going to be a secret how you and I feel about this film, but I'm aching to know how Darren feels about it. But before we get into that, I, I do want to say that, John, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, when I first encountered this film, if you listen back to our Godfather episode, you hear me talk about Dom DeLuise's Grilling with the Godfather weekend on, it was either AMC or TCM or something like that. And I just got enraptured by these movies. It was during my birthday weekend. And I just kept, as we were setting up for 4th of July and everything like that, I would kept kind of peeking at the TV. It was just on and like sitting down and watching it. And after I got like most of those movies in, I went to my dad and I said, we got to go to the video store. I got to get these movies. I got to watch these movies from beginning to end without interruption. And we did. And I remember the two cassette clunky (laughs) godfather part two and i didn't know what to do because um they had godfather one two and three on tape but they also had the godfather saga on tape ah and i had no idea and i was just like oh i I don't know what this is and so i just grabbed it (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh and then i remember watching it i'm just like i don't remember this order being this way like i don't remember it starting this way this is weird being in temporal order but like it, then i understood what was going on it was the first and i actually it was the first vhs and only vhs that i ever bootlegged oh wow i was it like because back then like cassettes were you know a lot of money especially the godfather and i remember my dad had an old camcorder like one of those huge over-the-shoulder camcorders that took a full vhs tape not mm-hmm. Betamax, not anything else, <laughs> like a full VHS tape. And so I hooked like I hooked it up to the VCR and put Godfather <laughs> into the into the camcorder and then recorded it on tape. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying that it happened. And uh, that was my that was my first and only bootleg. How how fitting that you watched a mob movie and uh bootlegged, right? I, mean, I, I hope mean, the FBI fitting, doesn't right? come after me for this one. <laughs> I got rid of the tape. I got rid of the tape. Wouldn't that be great? I think maybe we, we've got our own movie. We should we should spin up here where somebody thirty years after the fact, you know, where's the VHS tape? Where's the VHS tape? Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, now, and, and like and like you, John, I was just I was just blown away. I just I I didn't know that movies could be that good. Now, Tristan, you mentioned the saga version. Is that like a separate version that came out that? changed it and put it in chronological order so like the flashbacks you had from godfather 2 was what you saw in the very beginning yes all the robert de niro stuff was its own movie at the big shown at the beginning and then you saw godfather part one then you saw godfather part two sans robert de niro but uh as an added bonus they put in the tv scenes to it as well as well as some other additional material so there's more finucci in uh the when i was growing up it was called the godfather the complete epic and then it turned into the godfather saga after part three came out but it was the godfather the complete epic and they re-edited everything chronologically and it was it was beautiful it had extra scenes it had more finucci it had uh there, there's actually in the beginning of the michael part of Godfather Part Two, when he's sitting in his study, when people are coming in and Connie's about to come in and talk to him and everything, you actually see him pull out a file, and you you flash over and you see him blow up the car that has the guy who assassinated Apollonia. I that, forgot that about like, that. Yeah, right. And you see him that he's assassinated him that he never let go of it, mm. and it's one of those things. But it's one of those things though where it's really interesting to watch in the context of the complete epic or the saga but it was a very rudimentary lesson when i was just starting to piece together what went into making movies about the decision process because you could sit there and say oh that's an extra scene that i didn't see before but then when you thought about it you were like yeah but it really did kind of break up the flow like it just it it happened and I, I I call out to that michael scene having uh having um fabrizio blown up is it's a callback to something that happened in the previous movie. It's a standalone thing. And then of course you could sit there and you could say, and I didn't notice that it wasn't there. Yeah. I didn't need to see him do that. And so it, it sort of bakes into your brain. Like sometimes you got to make these cuts to have the story just flow a little bit better. Now, one thing about the Godfather complete Epic that was doing that was one of his conditions 
to directing Godfather Part 2. Because he had a horrible time directing the first Godfather. And Paramount wanted him to direct Godfather Part 2. And first he said, no, I don't want to direct it. Just let me produce. Let me write it. Let me produce. And let somebody else direct it. And he said, he's like, let Scorsese direct it. And Paramount Pictures said, no. It's either you or it's not happening. And he said, fine. I'll do it under these conditions. And I wrote them down. Um, because there were so many. He said he, he agreed under several conditions that the sequel be interconnected with the first film with the intention of later showing them together, that he be allowed to direct his own script, the conversation, that he be allowed to direct a production for the San Francisco Opera, and that he be allowed to write the screenplay for The Great Gatsby, all prior to production of the sequel for a Christmas 1974 release. So... The only thing on that where I, I have a question is he Paramount could boss around the opera like or. Yeah, I have no know, idea. Like, maybe maybe it just meant like he'd be allowed the time to do it. I'm oh, not sure. I see. I see what you're saying. I see. Yes, that's I all that I gathered from it. Wow. That's. um, But I mean, think about that. He does all of this. He negotiates all of this. He writes it all, two years. It's two years between the movies. Nowadays, you can't get a sequel in less than five years because it, blah, 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 interconnected, blah, blah, stinger, like franchise. It's like, <laughs> this is sitting in his head. Now, granted, the he's Godfather still working. The cinematic universe. Oh, yeah, God, exactly. give it time. Give it oh, time. Please, no, no, now no, Now you can own it you say it. on eight VHS cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so Godfather Part Two filmed over 103 days, and Al Pacino was friggin' pissed. And he kept screaming, Serpico could took 19 days. <laughs> mm. Apparently, uh, like, um, Pacino was just a monster to deal with on Godfather Part 2. Like, he, like, when they, when um, Coppola gave him the script, he said, I'll only play it if you make all of these changes and you give me, like, a huge salary increase. And... And Coppola capitulated. He re- he rewrote the script over one night and handed it to him the next day. And Pacino's like, fine. And you know what's stunning about that? Because this is one little trivia tidbit I remember from reading the making of books for the, the first two and everything. Is after the first table read for The Godfather Part 2, apparently the cast all stood up and applauded. They basically gave Coppola a standing ovation because they they did the table read and they just said, this is how did you do this basically like they, and they just regarded him as a wizard. And so just the idea that he, he made all of those changes and the script still turned out well enough for the cast to be that enthusiastic about it. Not, not be like, well, I have some notes, but everybody just stands up and applause is like, yeah, let's film it. Sure. (laughs) Let's do this. Crazy. So Darren, what did you know about the Godfather part two? Like what, what was in your brain from pop culture? from just being an American and loving film, but never seeing it. Like what, what was in your brain? Very, very little. I mean, I knew that there was, you know, the Godfather sequel. I didn't know how later it was filmed versus the first one. I didn't know it was going to go back and forth between young Vito and Michael. I mean, it's obviously a continuation of the story, like literally picks right up. And there's, I feel like there is, I feel like the the um, dying in the bathtub scene. I had somehow seen that some random some random way, but that's literally it. Like nothing else came across in my absorbing film culture. No other scenes. No other. I mean, I you know when we talked about this in The Godfather Part One, you know, I knew the horse head in his bed. I knew Offer confused and like the you know, the shootout at the toll booth and all that, you know, I knew a lot more versus this. I was going in very blind, very much just, okay, here we go. And Oh, look, there's Mike. Oh, that's right. We're in Vegas. That's right. You know, it's been a week or two since we watched uh, part one, but uh, yeah, very, very little going in. So Darren, you talked about the movie picking up right after the, the first one. So we start with the communion well, I guess actually we we start with um, young Vito, and then we move to to the to the communion. So, John, how did you feel about the flashbacks? Let's talk about the flashbacks. Let's talk about De Niro. Let's talk about young Vito. How did you feel about seeing that journey 
from uh, from a young boy in Sicily, uh, from Corleone, where his family slaughtered and he has to go to America. Like, wh- how did that resonate with you? Did you feel like it was a departure? Was it too much of a departure from the first one? Or did you enjoy it right away? I think I'm biased because this was the first one that I watched. Like, it, it didn't strike... There was no way it was going to strike me as a departure. If I were to contextualize it, then I would say that it's actually probably the reason why this film works so well uh despite being a sequel and the reason it can stand alone just right from the first frame is it's not picking up with the events right after it's bringing you back to it and starting the story over which i think is very helpful especially in this sort of order you know because this movie comes out previous to the home video market and stuff like that. And there were two ways you could do it. Well, three ways you could presume the audience knows everything and just goes with it. You could, uh, do, a, a poor man's recap of things at the beginning somehow, or you could do what Superman two, which I know wasn't seventies, but you know, later, you know, 1980 or whatever, but like you could do what Superman two did, which is something I actually kind of hate most times, which is basically replay highlights of the first movie over the opening credits which to this day drives me nuts when it's not done right previously on superman 2 exactly exactly um so i think it's very good it's it's a it i think it's the perfect way to shift gears and also bring in a new audience because somebody might not have seen the first one and that you know that that probably shapes how i approach sequels as well because i'm a very big one for if I come into a sequel, I should be able to come in cold, not having seen anything that came before, pick up and run with it and still enjoy it. Darren, how did you feel being this year, this being your first time? Yeah, I definitely think it worked. Uh, I think the parts where he's in in Italy fit because we had seen Michael there. So because we had already been back and forth between America and Italy, I think that flowed just the same yeah the fact that it was in the past didn't really matter the scenery was kind of the same and you're starting to recognize locations and places and then when he comes to america and the piece is starting to fall into place because yeah it answers a question i didn't know i had which was how did you know Vito become the godfather and you know and he starts his uh, olive oil business like legitimately an olive oil business which will eventually not be so legitimate but yeah, and how he just kind of starts by going after, I just called him the guy in the white coat because I could never remember the hand, I guess, is the black a hand. black yep. hand in the white coat with the white hat. Uh, but yeah, they they do a great job of showing and not telling because you, you kind of get it in two scenes. You get it in uh, the part where Vito is making him an offer, but he's not really making him an offer like I'm expecting him to you know lay into the guy but he's not he just is he know he's risking it giving him less money than he's asking for but the way he does it on his own and the respect he is showing but also not I mean he eventually you know shoots the guy but uh but then the the second moment in the flashbacks that I think was really impactful was when uh the landlord uh, wanted to, he was basically haggling him and, and didn't want to, you know, give the old lady, you know, their place back or all of those things. And he even kind of compromises a tiny bit. But then once he asks around town about who Vito, Vito is, his, I mean, it's like a night and day change. And he's just, he's giving it to her to free. Like he just doesn't, doesn't want to be on the, the, on his bad side at all. And and that's it. We got just enough, I think, in the flashbacks. I don't think it's ever superfluous. Uh, we even get him closing the loop with the, the man who killed his father and his family, which I had totally forgotten by that point. It's a long movie, Tristan. Did I mention <laughs> it's a really long movie? I had forgotten that that had happened. And fortunately, they say his name again. And it, it, there's enough to remind you in that moment, but I had forgotten that that had happened. When you uh, you texted me, like after we watched The Godfather, you texted me, you're like, holy crap, I just looked at the running time of Godfather <laughs> Part 2. And I said, I was like, yeah, it's essentially two movies in one. 
Yeah. Like it's it's two movies intercut, but it doesn't feel like it. You know, it feels like <laughs> that's what the two stands for. Two movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it it's interesting because, uh, again, getting back to the stuff that was cut, um, but c- creeps its way back into the complete saga. Uh, Don Finucci, you find out, actually, that Vito is the one that pieces together that Finucci isn't really black hand. Now, that's not vital to this story. But Finucci's whole, uh, you know, his whole persona is based around the idea that the black hand backs him up and you find out that he's an imposter and Vito pieces this together. This is taken over from the book because he sees some kids attack Finucci, almost kill him and nothing happens to them. And it's at that point where Vito's like, "Eh, this guy's not really black hand. Um, But again, it's not necessary to this. And if anything, cutting that makes Vito look like even more of a very serious person because he doesn't, you know, you don't have that sort of thing uh, to, to lessen Finucci's uh, menace at all. Uh, I, one thing I want to ask about though, is this takes the tack of still referring to Vito as the Godfather, because in that, that opening flashback, the actual text on screen says the Godfather was born in Sicily. And I, I was wondering, is that any sort of disconnect at all? Because Michael is the Godfather now, but the movie makes it clear that this, you know, Antonio Andolini, or I'm sorry, not Antonio, Vito Andolini is the Godfather in the title, even though he's not the Godfather of the story, as it were. Is that any sort of disconnect? I see what you're saying. I mean, yes, I've seen the first movie, but I I don't necessarily feel that you would mistake Vito for Michael or for his story, especially because of the time. I mean, they do drop Mm. a date on it, like 1901 or something. And if you know that the main era of Michael as the Godfather is like the 40s, 50s, and so on, uh, which makes more sense, so... Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily feel that there well, was a disconnect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean more in the sense that because we talked about this, how the Godfather is really Michael's story, but Vito is the Godfather. Well, Michael is the Godfather in this. He's the titular character, but the movie refers to Vito as the Godfather first, and it, so that that's just sort of the disconnect. Not not that there would be confusion between the characters, but. It's almost as if the movie is having its cake and eating it too by establishing that and saying, you know, this little boy becomes the godfather. But the God, it's still, it, it, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, and I'm not digging the movie for this at all. It's just sort of like taking a temperature check sort of thing where it's like, is it undercutting Pacino again to call Vito the godfather first in this, in this movie, even though, again, it's Michael's story. I, I don't think so because I think it's all about generation. You know, it's generational blood and generational feud, generations ongoing. And, you know, like we we start with, you know, the first generation of The Godfather where Vito is born in Sicily, goes to America, starts his own business, starts his own family, and then passes it on to Mike. And we we see how Fredo was passed over. You know, he's the older brother, but he was passed over. You know, like we, we talk about, you know, generation generational conflict and, you know, being passed over and moving on to the next one. And then, you know, like we we, we see the first generation and then we see the latest generation with uh, Michael's son and his first communion. That like in, in quote unquote mm. present day, you know, like that's the first shot is Michael's son. And then, you know, towards the end of the movie or, you know, towards the climax we have Kay admitting that she had an abortion because she didn't want to continue this, uh, this, to quote her, Sicilian thing. And I think that that kind of goes into the movie about how you show the beginning, you show the latest, and you see Kay trying to deny the future. And that's kind of how I saw it. But do you see, uh, like, is there a commentary here about how, because Michael has that heart-to-heart with his mom, where he says, you know, did dad ever risk losing his family by being strong for them? 
And you realize, number one, in that moment that Michael has misinterpreted what being strong means, being strong for your family. And additionally, this idea of the attempt to recreate the old ways was never going to work in America when it got to a larger sort of thing, where when it was the neighborhoods, you could recreate that old world feel because it was a much smaller environment. But now Michael is, to quote Hyman Roth, we're bigger than U.S. Steel. There, this isn't a family anymore. It's a corporation. And so there, there's this, to me at least, this seeming commentary on how the just the American way of life is not going to support the old ways. And it's not saying it's good or it's bad. It's just saying Michael is trying to recreate something that cannot exist. The sun was already setting on this way of life in the first movie. And Michael is just sort of this lone soldier standing, you know, athwart history because it's, it's different. Now the world is changing to use his own words. I I don't read it as, as, as Michael trying to recreate something, I see it as Michael, Michael trying to escape No, what, no. I, what's I'm, going on. I'm talking about the way that the family is structured, the way that this business of ours, La Cosa Nostra, the way that it operates, it's no longer... Like Vito, we see... I, I think the biggest contrast we see is that Vito gets into this with noble intentions to succeed and protect and... He's protecting the widow. He's helping his friends. He's, and these are all, he's doing all of these illegal things, but there's an element of survival and preservation to it. Whereas the, the family is no, the family is just a giant corporation. They've lost, you have Pentangeli, who originally in the script was Clemenza, lamenting, saying, you know, he's the one saying, that's why I love that Ritz cracker line is Pentangeli is the old ways. He, he's an old guy. He's like, well, you're out here in Nevada. This isn't our way of life. Why aren't you in New York where we belong sort of thing? And so just thinking in terms of the fact that, and again, I'm not saying it's like a bad thing that these old vicious Sicilian mafia ways, you know, couldn't sustain themselves sort of thing. But, you know, there's, there's an intimacy that's been lost to Michael's family. Right, contrast the way Vito interacted with everybody to the way Michael interacts with everybody. Michael's very cold, right? Whereas Vito very much had that that war. You know, we're not murderers, no matter what this Undertaker thinks, that sort of thing. And Michael is just—he's a cold, vicious person who, at one point, demands such fealty from his own sister she has to kiss his ring. And it's like, you know, I—I I, I just, you know, I, I think that I. Maybe I'm reading into it, but that that's a commentary that I, I, that has grown on me in time. No, okay, I can never pronounce his name right. Pentangeline, is that Pentangeli. right? Pentangeli. And Yes. Okay, Pentangeli. Frankie thank Five you. Angels. Can you imagine? I like it, it, he's a great actor and gave a great performance. I, it, didn't he get nominated for it? I think he did. I think he did. Um, yeah, I, I I think he's he's a highlight of the film. But can you imagine? How much more impactful it would have been with Clemenza. I absolutely can. And it, it this is where the Godfather Part 2 sets up a history repeating with Godfather Part 3. Is um, And I forget the actor's name who played Clemenza wanted more money to come back. And, and he wanted to write his own lines too. Oh, I, I, okay. Well, that one I can totally understand why Coppola said you need to pound sand. But yeah, Coppola says, no, you, you can't. We, we can manage without you. And this, I think, probably informs his estimation in The Godfather Part Three to say to Robert Duvall, no, I'm not going to pay you the same as the principals. You're going you're to make less than Diane Keaton, and w- which is why Duvall was like, no, I'm not going to do Godfather Part Three. So, oh, like, that kills me every time. Every time I see Part Three, I'm just like, just oh. Hamilton man. did great, but again, like if Pentangeli had been Clemenza, then the role is that much more impactful. And if... Mm-hmm. Um, if Hamilton had been Duvall in part three, then there's more weight to some of the things that are happening. But I, I, having seen, again, having seen part two first, there's no emotional disconnect for me. Pentangeli was That's just true. always a part of the story. And I love Frankie Pentangeli. 
Like he's that character is so so fantastic. My brother and I still make the joke about uh, you know the, the toast. You know, I didn't come here to eat dinner and you know and knocking the wine over and stuff like that. You know, Pentangeli is a a touchstone for me and my brother. <laughs> Darren. So the first Godfather had a lot of wheels within wheels, a lot of plot lines, a lot of backstabbing, a lot of, you know, undercover, double crosses and everything like that, triple crosses. So this amps it up to 11. <laughs> How did you feel about the plot of the main storyline, the Nevada storyline with, with Michael, not Bobby D, but like with, with Nevada and, and Cuba and everything like that? Did you have a hard time following the plot? Was it pretty easy for you? Because even to this day, even though I've seen it countless times, I still have to pay attention. I'm like, wait, who are they going to see? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, it it was a little easier. I felt that maybe it was with the names were more distinctive or the way they cut it was better. But like Roth, like you, like that name stuck when they said it and you're like, okay, this is Roth. He's the guy in Cuba. He's doing this. He's in, you know, he starts in Florida and he's doing this. And, you know, you, you could track that. And then, like you said, like, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Pen Pentangeli. Pentangeli. Yep. Perfect. Yes. And, you know, that one, that one was a little, I lost, I lost track of him for half a moment where I didn't know who their star witness was. And then it's like, oh, it's that guy. You know, <laughs> I need my mugshot wall of like actors from this movie. But, but no. Oh my gosh. So wouldn't that be such a great idea to have that on your wall? Cause like, didn't they have that at the court proceedings? Like they had the, yes. the graph with like mm -hmm. the underboss. Oh my gosh. Okay. I need to recreate that. That's going to be a summer. It's, your, it's <laughs> your, your guide to get you through the Godfather saga, eight VHS tape. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but no, overall, though, I felt uh, it it worked maybe because less time passes. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really have a sense on how much time, but I mean, the first movie, it's like a decade or so goes by. Yeah, it's a decade. And so in this one, I mean, you pretty much have, you know, stuff going on in Nevada and then you have, uh, you know, the Cuban stuff, which I'm I'm is believing the night they get out is is fidel castro's revolution is that mm -hmm. what they're implying yeah. okay yes. i don't know a ton of of cuban history but uh that that felt like it lined up where it should and then um you know they're, they're and then you have him come back once more with the being exiled and not allowed into uh israel and has to come back and then and i think i think i might have seen that scene as well. Somehow I, I was like, Oh, well someone's going to be at the airport with a gun and just shoot them. And then they're going to die. Like that just feels like the only way they're going to be able to take them out. Uh, Cause they talk a lot about again, moving away from the old ways where, well, you have one guy who's on an army base. You have one guy who's surrounded by, you know, marshals and all this stuff. And it's, it's not as easy as it used to be. Uh, but I think, yeah, but overall it, it kind of, came together and again i mean talking about coming together with um uh that end shot with the uh at the table uh you know which is kind of just bringing it all back together where it's it's obviously i'm assuming all was shot new yes you know, for this for this movie but you have all his brothers and you have michael and i was thinking they were going to do some sort of fade out like one by one each person was kind of going to disappear as they had died in the first movie, but it worked out in its own way as its own scene where, you know, fortunately Vito's off, off screen around the corner, but, uh, they, but again, it, the fact is it ends on that shot of it's just Michael who's left and he's all alone. And that's mm -hmm. the point that they're coming across. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you said something about, you know, Vito's just around the corner in that scene originally had Vito in it. But they couldn't get Brando to come back. That's what and, I that's what I figured. Oh, they and, they ha they he agreed to come back, and he just didn't show up on the day. Oh, jeez. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's okay. even worse. Yeah, I, I that's know, even I, worse. Can you imagine Coppola pulling his hair out, being like, "Dear, yeah." He had he had to rewrite it, and they filmed well, it the next day. Well, the the thing that I think is fascinating about that is that that scene I argue is better because he's not in it that agree. Scene i totally is agree gutting 
because it underscores that whole idea that Michael is always haunted by not just that decision, not just that moment in time, not anything. He's haunted by the memory of his dad. And because he, that's the gist of his conversation with his mother is talking about how did dad keep it together? Why can't I be a great man like dad was? And it's this, this thing that he's always going to chase and that's always going to be there. And I just think it's, it's such a beautiful scene. I think it's probably one of the best scenes I've ever seen. And just the idea that Coppola re again, rewrote it in a day, like how, how, cause I know Sonny wound up having some of Vito's lines. And so you have James Conn delivering the lines the way Sonny would, as opposed to the way that Vito would. Right. And I think it also allows you to just preserve that memory, that idea we walk away again at the end of this with a much softer vision of Vito because De Niro plays him so charismatically that it's fascinating because when you break it down, Vito is every bit as bloodthirsty and vicious as Michael is, but he never comes off that way. You know, there's this, there's this charismatic energy there's that comes charm. off of him. Yeah, exactly. And Michael's just done away with the charm. He's simply now cold. one, one question I'm assuming not, but was this scene then moved in the saga? Because technically it takes place before, uh, but they still use it as a flashback. Yes. They, okay. they still use I mean, that I don't as think it would work. It moved, no. but I was just curious because obviously uh, timeline-wise, it's a moment that takes place earlier. Yeah. Yeah, and if they did move it- That's a it, solid question, though. Yeah, it, but if they did move it, it would have to exist literally between the end of uh, Robert De Niro's storyline and the first scene in The Godfather. It'd be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> that, would be so, that would be such a disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, I, you know, even, even the fact that they uh, they brought back the actor who played Carlo, you know, like yeah. just everybody being there except Everyone's for there. Vito. And, Sunny, okay. and it's oh, only okay. two years later, so it feels like it, this could have been shot during Godfather 1. Like it, it matches mm-hmm. perfectly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not like they've aged, you know, 10 years in that amount of time. But uh, Jimmy Kahn, he demanded the same pay that he got for Godfather, and he and he got it. Wow. Well, because he knows, like, you can't do the scene without this character. And, right. you know, it's for what, uh, like, one twentieth of the screen time of the previous movie? I guess Brando was just holding out so that Superman could be the movie where he got paid the most amount of money per minute. Uh, cause I guarantee you his salary wasn't, you know, honestly, probably Paramount's accountants when Brando didn't show up, they were like, yes, we don't have to pay him. We probably saved like 10% of the budget in that moment. The, the Brando budget. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, Darren, I want to ask you and, and Tristan, of course, as well, but we like, care what Tristan says. Uh, yes. Oh, I'm re- ready to do. listen to uh, no. what's your question. Now, the, the score Right? Mm. Do you feel that there was anything additional about the score? Do you feel that there was anything that had, um, you know, additional oomph or anything like that 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 was particularly memorable? Is this the type of score you would listen to, or is this simply not really distinguishable from the first Godfather score? I would say I felt and remember the score more in the flashback pieces. Now that could be because they used it more in the flashback piece. I don't know minute for minute if how balanced it was, but it felt whenever they go into melody and when they go into just that general feeling of the score, it it makes me think of Vito more than uh more than Michael. Because in Michael's scenes, when the score does come in, it's just it's usually just punching up a moment. Whereas I felt like it was the background for the flashback. That was mm. New York in the 1900s. That was Sicily in the time of his birth. You know, that it, it's underscored. And again, I might be remembering it incorrectly, but it feels like the score was almost always there. Or at least it, you know, is, is a melody in the background. Uh, and I'm not talking necessarily about the Godfather melody, which does come into play uh, on, the, on the guitar. But uh, yeah, I a good good score, a good you know use of the the main theme again. But it definitely, I think, rang truer 
to the flashbacks than the more modern pieces. I mean, modern, quote unquote, as present right. day. Right. Tristan, any, any take on the score? Yeah, I I absolutely love the score. It's iconic. It's It's hard for me to listen to it because I get so wrapped up in the imagery. You know, it, it's it so evokes the the image of the film because like when i when i watch it when i listen to it i'm just imagining the movie that's going on it's kind of like um it's kind of like star wars you know it's kind of like john williams right. and star wars where you know you hear the scene you see I'm, I'm mixing up my words here but you listen to the music and you and you see the scene in your head while listening to it at the same time that's kind of how i am with nina rota's you know theme and and music it, it's 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 beautiful it's eerie it's poignant and yeah, that's that's my take on it. You know, what's interesting to me too is, and we we talked about this talking about the first one is everybody wanted to take some sort of credit for the Godfather, uh, and very notably Robert Evans, the producer, you know, at, at Paramount was like, oh well, I saved that cut, I made that movie work, and I'm the one that made blah 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 blah, and the whole reason. I believe that he's a liar or taking more credit than he deserves or attempted to take more credit than he deserved is the fact that nobody had that fight about the Godfather part two. Everybody just, this is Coppola's movie. And the fact that nobody fought about this one, this seems to really put just that stamp, just end that conversation for everybody that wanted to take credit over Coppola for the first Godfather. He makes the Godfather part two. How can you with a straight face say, oh yeah, sure, he did the Godfather part two, fine. But I'm the one that saved it. It's like, mm, you know, the one constant between these two things <laughs> is Francis Ford Coppola. So I'm going to have to say he had a lot to do with how this turned out. So in two years. Yeah, again, how <laughs> directing a movie between it? How do you do that? So I have so, I have trouble paying bills on time some months. So on one side of, of the so scale, do we have Coppola in two years going from Godfather One to Godfather Two, and then the other end of the scale we have Cameron with how many years between Avatar <laughs> and Avatar Two? I think that Avatar is our two, scale. Avatar Two has to be it. it if it is anything less than the greatest film that's ever been created in the history of cinema, he has completely whiffed on this one at this point. So better than Godfather Part Two is what you're saying. It has to be better than the Godfather Part. It has to be as good as the Godfather Part Two meets Star Wars meets Citizen Kane meets Touch of Evil meets. Uh, okay, let's pull a couple other ones off the shelf. There, it 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 has to be a cinematic experience equivalent to all. You know, all of the thousands of cinematic experiences I've had in my lifetime to justify the amount of time between <laughs> movies at this point. When, again, Coppola can do The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 with the conversation in between in two years <laughs> and direct the San Francisco Opera. So there you now, go. Now, we will say, listeners, uh, as the time of this recording, it is 2001, sorry, 2021, <laughs> and, uh, and we have yet to uh, get Avatar Part 2. So uh, we don't know when it's part coming two. out, Yeah, but, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. Before yeah. we close, before we close, John, Darren, I want to ask you guys a question about Hyman Roth. Mm. So... The actor who played Hyman Roth, this is really just an aside. The actor who played Hyman Roth actually got sick during production. And so... <laughs> a little method Coppola, acting right there. So. <laughs> no, Coppola wrote it into the script mm -hmm. that he was an ailing old man. Yep. And so they're like, that's why he can like lay down and like look tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's smart. Brilliant. Brilliant. And Absolutely you never brilliant. would know it. It like, it, totally, you're like, it totally works. It feels like it's intentional. Uh, but I want to ask you guys, okay... So Hyman Roth's motivation behind trying to assassinate Michael. So we have that big speech in the hotel room where Roth says, you know, somebody killed Mo Green. We all know that he knows. He's like, somebody killed Mo Green, but I didn't care because it's business. It's business. Now, if he didn't care, why did he try to kill Michael and, you know, get out 
of a major deal that was going to bring him a lot of money. John, I want to know what you what you have to he didn't, say about that. He didn't say he didn't care. He said, I didn't ask. You don't ask because that's just business. And obviously, the hit on Michael had a dual purpose. He could get revenge for his friend Mo Green and... Fredo then gets installed. The same reason that uh, Solozzo tried to assassinate Vito was because Sonny was hot for the deal. And Fredo would have been a puppet. And Hyman Roth could have controlled Fredo easily. And so you assassinate Michael. Fredo becomes the head of the family, which is what he always wanted because he felt looked over. Because he's smart. He's not dumb like everybody says. He's smart. Is he though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think Fredo has a little problem with honesty with himself in that scene, but okay. Um, but yeah. I want to like, talk I want to yeah. talk about that scene though. I want to talk the one of the best beauty scenes in the history of, of that scene. Also the just the 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 body position, mm-hmm. the uh, the direction, the blocking, just like how like he's laying down and he's like he's he, he's laying he's in a lounge chair and he's he's screaming about being smart. And it's totally like it's the weakest position mm-hmm. in theater and film that you could ever have, and yet he's like struggling to kind of like keep himself up, and he doesn't stand up. He, that's the thing about Fredo; he struggles to stand up, but yet he's screaming the entire time. Yeah, I, it, it, um, John Cazal, Cazali. Uh, we, we've gone back and forth about how to pronounce the last name. Who knows? Um, the the, the absolute uh, the 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 treasure trove the the depth the spoils of all of the absolute masterful performances from top to bottom in this film and you can point to so many of them and you come out of this film and he winds up being forgotten sometimes i think as does Duvall, as does everybody else because they think of de niro who won the award and yeah. but the idea that Al Pacino didn't get the award for this. <laughs> I, I haven't even seen Harry and Tonto, but I can guarantee you that there is no way there was any better. I'll watch every film that was released in 1974, every single one. And I promise you, well, I you got never two find down a, conversation <laughs> and uh, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> for the part um, two. But seriously, I will watch every film released in 1974 and every television show, and I will promise you that not one single performance was better than Pacino's, and and that Cazale deserved more recognition for his just that scene alone. The fact that I, you know, I, I'm I'm sorry to go on and on, but like seriously, as you rightly point out, Tristan, that scene is amazing. Like that is the that is the type of scene you show in a class when you want to show people how to act. You say, "Okay, watch this a hundred times. Try to figure out everything that they did to make that work. Then you have an inkling of what you might be able to attempt to do." And the fact that these two actors then go on to do Dog Day Afternoon, which I think is the next year, mm-hmm. is ridiculous. I like. I, I just. I you know, I, again, I've tipped my hand as we come closer to the rating section <laughs> a three what might is think. what i'm getting something yeah, in the middle three, three and a half, yeah. maybe it struggles for a two and a half it's a little bit long like you said there <laughs> so. one per vhs tape <laughs> yeah for, <laughs> yes. for now you talked about like like we talked about that scene and everything like that like we're not sponsored by screen binder in any way but one of my favorite <laughs> youtube channels is screen binder everyone should go to youtube and search screen binder because they do a lot of godfather stuff and they analyze they analyze scenes and show you, you know, like positions blocking, you know, ci- uh, you know, cinematic techniques, cinematography, direction, everything like that. So, like, it really is, re- it's, it's, it's very cool and eye-opening to show how much thought is put in behind these scenes. It's not just setting up a camera, getting a two-shot and a wide. You know, it's, it, it's amazing the depth that they go into, and it really gives you a greater appreciation for what Coppola did in order to convey these emotions now i think we're uh, we're rounding third here i think we've we've landed at the end we could go on for hours and hours and hours talking about this film because it's the godfather part two but darren i would love to know the rating you have for this this is okay so this is this, some people say it's better than the first one 
Some people say this is the greatest movie of all time. It's right next to or even exceeds Citizen Kane. So I want to know, how big a balls do you have (laughs) (laughs) to rate this lower than five? But I want your honest answer. Oh, I'm not going to give it a five. But I think that you're gonna get a fish in the mail. <laughs> no, I'm I'm gonna give this a, a four along with Godfather one. Not that I don't. It's really hard for me to to judge them against each each other because I don't have that nostalgia piece, and yeah. I and I honestly feel that now. Ask me the same question again ten years from now when I've watched this a couple of times, but after one viewing of each, it's it just feels like one big story. And, uh, you know, and also the, uh, the genre is not my favorite. Like I'm not a big crime mob drama type person. So I don't know as much about, you know, what makes a good, that kind of a film. But as far as, you know, like we mentioned when we talked about Godfather one and you're talking about these YouTube channels that are talking about blocking and, and writing and pacing again, it's, it's Coppola. It's, you can look for those things because you know, they're purposeful. It's not just, Oh, I wonder why Vito's around the corner of this, uh, you know, table discussion. It's like, no, there's a reason. There's a reason that it ends with Michael sitting there alone. There's a reason you have the duality here and you have, you know, just everything is, is so well put together. Uh, so for the story it's telling, uh, the story of Vito and Michael, you know, it, yes, it's long. Yes. I'm popping in my second VHS tape, but, uh, it, it's again, 74 for Coppola, man. He, he is just taking and I, it is really sad almost to see how his career then did start to kind of, you know, tumble a little bit as he had more studio issues and, and other things like that. And I wish he had gotten more of a, um, not necessarily a Lucas treatment, but like just give this man money and let him go do his thing because you know, he, he can, he can do his thing. But uh, so I'm going to give it uh four uh, lonely boat trips. Um, <laughs> too soon. Too soon. I mean, he had to know he had to, I mean, come on. Like oh, his, son, knew. his son Fredo. is getting oh, taken away to Reno I, I, at that moment. Yeah. It's like, buddy, you, and you're going to start singing your Hail Marys and all that. It's like, no, buddy, you're, you're not coming back from this boat. No, I, I, Fredo knew. Fredo knew that was his last boat trip, for sure. Uh, I will. I will also say um, that Coppola's, uh, you know, quote unquote tumble or whatever. We'll talk about how it's not this movie, but Apocalypse Now might be the one that breaks him, because um, that one's got a really interesting production history. And you might notice he comes out with The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, nineteen seventy two and nineteen seventy four. Apocalypse Now takes a little bit longer to make. Just going to throw that out there. Um, a lot longer to make. But you have here, in my opinion, a film that defines film itself that is so magnificently crafted. There are movies that I watch today that are an hour and 40 minutes long and I find myself getting antsy about an hour and 20 minutes in and saying, okay, 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 I, I get the point. Yeah, 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 let's wrap it up. Okay, yeah, Cap's Shield is special. Great. Did we need to be two hours and 12? Maybe not. <laughs> Any but, hit that you can make. Oh, God, Marvel. absolutely. Absol- I live to do it. I live to do it. Thor Ragnarok sucks. And we have this film that is more than three hours with an intermission where – I am spellbound from beginning to finish. And keep in mind, I, I, I might have been 12, 13. It's around that age. I, I forget the specific year. But to be able to capture that boy and make him pay attention to the point where it becomes and remains one of his favorite films of all time. And the fact that rewatching it this time, I'm so gutted at the end of the film because of the statement. This this actual absolute spiritual depletion of Michael Corleone and this absolute emptiness 
He's dead at the end of this movie. He's got nothing. Everything is gone. Every dream he ever had is gone. And that flashback where he's going to go off and he's not going to follow that path, where he's going to be the war hero, where he is going to find the American girl that is going to love him for being that good old-fashioned American boy, and to he's sitting there and in that moment looking back and realizing that you can't get it back, that everything he's done has resulted in nothing. Absolute despair and emptiness is one of the most, I know it's a downer of an ending, but it's such a wake-up call every time you watch it that you only get one shot. And if you screw it up, you don't get to do it over again. And we'll eventually, I'm sure, talk about The Godfather Part 3 and, you know, uh, changing opinions around that. But, you know, how many stars do I give it? I, I, you know, five billion stars. All the stars in the galaxy. This is, it's no accident that on Letterboxd, this is listed as one of those, in the, one of those four slots for favorite films of all time. Godfather Part 2 is sitting there. It will never, ever leave that list for any reason. So that's my rating. You talk about um, Michael being dead inside at the end and you know having that gut punch. Originally, the film was supposed to end with his son at 18 years of age coming to him and saying, I'm not following in your footsteps and I want nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. And then walking away. That's why like, he, has a, he has a little bit of crow's feet yeah. at the end, a little bit of gray hair. But Coppola ran out of he ran out of light. He missed the light of the day, and so they weren't able to film it. And Coppola's just like, "Eh, it's fine." Mm-hmm. Day five hundred of production. I decided to stop filming <laughs> without the light. And that's even more of a gut punch if you think about it, you know. And um, but yeah, so with my rating, I mean, it's yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm like John here. It's just. It's an amazing movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's, I can't give it five stars. I want to give it 10 stars. I want to give it 20 stars. It's just, it's one of, if not, the greatest film ever made. And I know that some people love to hate it just because they say it's overrated. And whenever a movie reaches this, this great of access to filmdom, that could be the douchiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Probably. Um, you know, like it's it's it becomes fashionable to say it's not that great, and yeah, did it's just, not care for the Godfather. Did not. <laughs> it did insists not upon itself. It insists upon itself. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the money pit. Uh, yes, so there we have it. Thank you, everybody, for listening so much. Uh, we we really appreciate it. We love that you guys listen. We love that you download. We love that you subscribe. Please, if you can, take the time to give us a uh, a rating at Apple Podcasts. Uh, it helps us going and let us know that you like what we're doing and it, it's a way for you to talk to us and uh, people have been emailing us and I want to say that we can't reply to everybody but uh, we want to say that you are being heard and I am taking uh, I am writing down a list of every director that you're suggesting for us to move on to and uh, next week we're moving on to Apocalypse Now and that's going to be our last Coppola movie for the time being because I really want to tackle 90s Coppola so that we can get to Godfather Part 3 but we're going to be tackling Apocalypse now. And uh, you can find me at the Inside Robin on Letterboxd and on uh, Twitter. And uh, please watch out for uh, my Star Trek show with Charlene Schmidt called Lower Decks. Uh, it's called, actually, it's called Second Contact. If I could actually tell you the name of my own show, it's called Second Contact, <laughs> a, uh, a Lower Decks podcast, a commentary podcast. And, uh, and also, Darren, where can we find you? Uh, they can find me at uh, drscifi.com, D-R-S-C-I-F-I, or listening here on the network on two other shows, both City Alpha 3, our Star Trek podcast, and Maker's Method number 56 in the category of hobbies. Sure, that's a thing. We'll take it. So <laughs> as we talk about uh, making and or and our, our methods. And John, yeah, of course, you can find me as Kessel Junkie out there on your social network of choice, K E S S E L J U N K I E. 
And you can find me here on the network co-hosting a show called Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast, which has nothing to do with organized crime, but maybe, just maybe, we'll talk about the huts sometime soon because now I'm in the mood. Uh, But that is where you can find me. I would love to connect with anybody. And um, as you can guess, I would gladly go on and on about The Godfather Part 2 for ages and ages. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And as we said before, we're going to be viewing and discussing Apocalypse Now next week. So please tune in and thank you for your time and for opening the door to House of Coppola. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.